You are listening to the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. This is your host, Umar Osman. I'm really excited to share today's episode with you. I was reading a book recently, just finished it up, called Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. And it's one of those books where, as I'm reading it, I'm highlighting and underlining and taking notes and writing down questions and all kinds of stuff because so much of what they wrote were a lot of things that we observe, that we notice, but they they put a label on it, they call it out, they make it easy to identify. And in doing so, it makes it a lot easier to talk about. So when we talk about this idea of grandstanding and people abusing and exploiting morality to build personal platforms or to gain self-recognition or to tear others down. We see all that everywhere, but this really puts it into a package, helps us understand it, both from the from the perspective of why people do it, what are the effects, and then also how we can protect ourselves from that type of a discourse and still be optimistic about the future and, and ways to maybe change that type of behavior that we see online. So I reached out to the authors. I was fortunate that they said yes and agreed to do this interview. Um, I've included their social media info in the show notes. So if you listen, if you enjoy it, if you learn something, please give them a shout out. Please give them a thank you online. Let them know something that you took away from their comments, something that you benefited. Um, I'm sure they would appreciate that. There's a link to the book in the show notes for the episode as well. Definitely grab a copy. I highly recommend everyone read it. And I've also got a video version of this recording online on my YouTube channel. So if you prefer to consume that way, you can check that out there as well. And with that, we'll get into the episode. Okay, so we're joined by Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke, authors of the book Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. Um, thank you guys for coming on. We want to talk about your book. So just to start out with, if you, if you guys could maybe just a brief intro uh, not necessarily who you are, although definitely share that, but how you got into this particular topic, because it's one of those things that you see it everywhere. And then when it's finally labeled, you're like, the light bulb goes off. Like, oh, that's what I've been seeing all this time. That's the hope. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Omar, for having us. We're happy to be here. Justin and I went to grad school together. We did our PhDs at the University of Arizona. And around 2014 or so, I think Justin and I both noticed what appeared to us anyway, like a trend on social media of people using political and moral discourse on, say, Facebook to draw attention to themselves. Uh, you know, ostensibly, they were having yeah. conversations about the poor or about immigration or about healthcare, care, uh, traditional family values, you know, abortion, whatever it was. But the sense that we got from these conversations and these sort of slogans, it's like, they were like PR releases, you know, they were like trying to, trying to draw attention to themselves, trying to make sure that they could communicate. They had the right values, a lot of self-centered sort of uh, talk. And so we did, we started thinking about this, you know, what's going on. And um, at the time, the only term for this sort of, sort of uh, status seeking, um, behavior was grandstanding. So um, believe it or not, this is before the term virtue signaling. If you or some of your 
uh, listeners are familiar with the term virtue signaling. That's, Very much that's so. sort of the term that's <laughs> kind of become cachet. I think it because it makes you feel sound, sound smart when you use it. But back then in 2014, this was the only term that that was sort of in the public vernacular. And so, uh, so th- at that point, we started writing, you know, doing some research, doing some writing, and uh, eventually it turned into a paper, and then it turned into a book. Um, but I think the 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 kernel of this project was Justin and I looking at people behaving and including ourselves to be honest and talking about morality and politics using it as a vanity project using it to seek status using it to impress other people so you know when you look you you know you look online you look even prior to let's say the social media age that type of self-promotion and whatnot it's not uncommon right like you have people that will pipe themselves up get rich quick schemes all those kinds of things what did you find unique about moral talk in particular? Hmm. Well, yeah. So, so as you note, um, there's nothing, there's nothing unique either about this happening just with social media and there's nothing unique really about, um, uh, at least in, in some ways, uh, about, uh, about people, uh, using any kind of, forum where you know your qualities are, are displayed to impress people um so because we're kind of hardwired to behave this way um it's just sort of to be expected that that when people have an opportunity uh to distinguish themselves um they take it i guess what makes the moral arena so interesting to us is, is not just that, that we're trained as moral philosophers um but that i think you can see uh, the competition between people um, in a way that's just so inappropriate, uh, when, when people are talking about, you know, important, uh, matters of, of, of justice or, uh, or whatever issue, you know, issue of moral concern, um, it's, it seems to us just so transparent that people are engaged in a kind of competition so often, uh, with their friends, uh, in a way that they would be, um, over things that don't really matter that, that much. Um, so, I mean, you know, for instance, it doesn't really matter that much who has, you know, the best or loudest singing voice, right? So, you, you know, you right. can go to like a, a religious ceremony and, and you'll see people like trying out, you know, out, outdo one another or be the most taken with the spirit or, uh, or, or whatever, uh, depending on, on your, your mode of worship. Um, so, I mean, that's mostly harmless, but, but when you get people talking about some, you know, contested moral issue, uh, it's important that we be able to see one another as trying to get it right. You know, j- just trying to figure out what justice requires of us, um, trying to figure out the right thing to do uh, for its own sake. Um, and instead, what we get is behavior that's more at home in, in um, kind of arenas where, where it doesn't matter so much, but, you know, people using something that that is bigger than themselves uh, and turning it into something that is just about themselves. Uh, and I guess, you know, Brandon and I wanted to write about this because we found this so ugly. Uh, and we think, uh, you know, it's so important that we be able to have these conversations. Uh, and, you know, but, it, you know, in the meantime, uh, we have people uh, abusing moral talk uh, and making it uh, a kind of vanity project instead. So what... And, and I know you guys talked about recognition desire in the book, but what is it that you think that really drives people from, you know, if we discuss, let's say, you gave a good example in the book. Let's say we talked about uh, rent control. We want to have a discussion about rent control, right? 
what is it that's motivating people to, instead of, let's say, hash the issue out, maybe evaluate both sides, come to some sort of reasonable conclusion, even if we disagree, rather than that being the objective, why has the objective shifted so much to me just trying to outdo you somehow or like when imaginary inner point, internet points or something? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good question. I think the, what's at stake is social status. And when we can get into a discussion where, you know, I might forward some boring view, some bo real boring, you know, moderate centrist take about rent control. Um, that's not gonna impress very many people. What people tend to be impressed by are vivid, uh, extreme claims that reveal, that have a kind of expressive value about their moral, about their moral insight, about their moral commitment to these, to these values. And so what's at stake is social status. And we've turned a lot of social media, and it's not just people on social media, you know, it could be uh, cable news hosts, uh, it could be politicians, there's social status to be had. And, and the reason is because a lot of us care about the way people see us. Um, you know, if, if the three of us get into a conversation about say rent control and each of us think that we care deeply about affordable uh, housing or the poor. And, and then, you know, Omar chimes in and says, you know, we should, you know, we should cap the rent at this. And then Justin says, are, are you kidding Omar? If you really cared about the poor, uh, you know, you'd, you'd cap the rent even lower. And then I come in and say, I'm absolutely disgusted by all of you. If you truly cared about the poor, you'd endorse a universal basic income. <laughs> and so, and so I win, right? Cause I, it looks at least to many, uh, who were involved in this conversation that I have the most sort of severe, the most impressive commitment to these values. And the problem is that what gets status and what expresses value often diverges from what's true because what's true is often what's boring what's true is often what's uninteresting and um, so a politician for example can get up there and you know wax wonkily about the ins and outs of how of uh, housing policy and and people are going to tune them out another politician can get up and you know and give a fiery speech about punishing landlords and um, and making housing affordable and we're going to pass this law and that law and it's a vivid solution to a problem and voters just like the rest of us on social media are taken in by these sorts of claims and so you know one way to think about your question is what's at stake social status and how do people get that by putting their values on display because that gets more attention than than being boring and what is what is the social status giving people like when I when I look at especially social media, right, I say the, you know, the currency of social media is attention, the more eyeballs, likes, views, comments, whatever that you get, the more that you're winning in a sense, right? What's is there any dr real driver beyond just I just want the attention. And so that means I'm winning at this game. Uh, kind of like what are, are you know, maybe another way is like, what are how are they getting rewarded? That makes them keep doing it. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of rewards. Some of it um, is emotional. So one thing we know is that expressing outrage feels good. Uh, in various studies, if you give people the option of reading a story about an injustice that makes them mad, and then you say, "Would you like to read a nice story or another story about injustice?" They tend to choose the story about injustice because they like the right. way. Um, 
it feels to feel outraged. It makes people feel morally superior. So, you know, one thing that that's driving this is just the, the feeling, the feeling of outrage. It's, it's, uh, it's satisfying. Philosophers for centuries have noted this, that it, that it feels good to be mad at people when they, when they mess up and because um, it makes us feel better about ourselves. Another thing that's driving this is, um, you know, uh, a lot of us f- think that we're morally good people. If you look at studies, uh, most people think that they're morally better than average. And to maintain this vision of ourselves to ourselves, we often have to behave in public in certain ways to confirm to ourselves that we are who we think we are. A lot of our self-conception has to do with how we measure up to others. You know, you might think you're really funny and then you meet some like friends who are like really hilarious and you're like, oh, I guess I'm not, not, not that funny. And then you go home and you're like the funniest guy that you know, your family's ever seen. And so a lot of the ways that we think about ourselves are... Uh, calibrated to whoever's around us. And so if you think of yourself as caring deeply about the poor or caring deeply about piety, um, and then you get around a bunch of people who seem to care about these things as much or more than you do, then you have to behave in certain ways to, as it were, um, put on a show to yourself. So that's another reason why we do these things. And then I think one that you mentioned um, uh, is, is, is the status. We want to be seen as morally good. Why? Well, one thing I think is true is that we just want that. Like we just want status. We merely want to be seen as better. I think that's, that's also true. But also the kinds of things that status affords us. So here are some things that status affords us. People defer to me in public discourse. People mm. always want to know what I hear. Uh, or people always want to hear what I, you know, what I, what I have to yeah. say. So if, if, you know, if I have 10,000 followers who think that I'm, I'm uh, the vanguard of the poor or, or I'm, I'm the best feminist or I care mostly about the American flag or something. And, and they're constantly wanting to know what I think, you know, that sort of attention feels good. And so there's lots of goodies, uh, goodies. Some of them are financial goodies that come with coming, being seen as, you know, having a great trait. I'm sure, you know, in the, in, um, you know, whatever online communities we run in, there are there are financial goodies involved. Oh yeah, there's notoriety, speaking invites. That's right. That's all that right. good stuff. Yeah, and so all that stuff comes with and can be purchased by uh, a ticket. That and and what that ticket says is, you know, I'm I'm really morally special. You know, there, there's one thing that you mentioned in the book that I wanted you guys to elaborate on was, and I haven't heard this term before, so it caught my eye was confabulation that we make up stories to tell ourselves to cover up our true intentions. So we might have one intent, but we give ourselves a narrative to somehow make ourselves feel better about it. Could you explain that concept in a little bit more detail and how that works? Yeah. So, I mean, think about all the things that you you do going throughout your day. Um, Often you have some sense of of why you do them. Um, you know basically what, what you're doing most of the time. Uh, but if your true motivations for every single thing you do uh, were revealed to yourself, uh, first, it would be overwhelming because uh, it's just so much processing going on. Uh, it makes more sense to have some, some of it sort of beneath the level of, of your cognitive attention. So, j- I mean, just breathing for, is like the most obvious example of this. Of course, you don't need to think about like when and how deeply to breathe every time you do it. Uh, so something similar happens uh, for some of our more complicated and less reflexive actions. Uh, we just aren't aware of every single thing 
uh, that motivates us. Another reason for this is uh, that quite possibly some of our motivations are not so pretty. So it's easy for us to, to think well of ourselves and continue to do the things that, that we need uh, to do in order to, to do well and survive and, th and thrive uh, throughout our lives uh, without uh, all of our, our deeper motivations being uh, laid bare before our, before our eyes and accept, easily accessible uh, in our deliberation. So because we're like this, because uh, we basically are self-deceived, uh, at least uh, about a lot of the things that we do, um, we can do things like grandstand without being aware that we're engaging in, in public moral discourse with the aim of impressing other people. Uh, so there are both witting and unwitting grandstanders. Um, so witting grandstanders are, know what they're doing. They, they know um, that, uh, you know, I'm saying this and I want people to think well of me. I want to get this guy uh, who's trying to make me look bad and I want to look better than him instead. Unwitting grandstanders come up with some other story that's, to refer to your question, confabulated, right? So they, they tell themselves, I don't know, you know, I'm just so worked up about this. I'm so, I'm so upset that this guy doesn't understand how important it is to take care of the poor and I'm gonna go after him and teach him a lesson. Uh, whereas at least a significant part of what motivates someone who does that just by hypothesis, we can say uh, is at least in some cases uh, that they wanna look good. They wanna look like, as Brandon said, the vanguards of the poor. Uh, they want to look like the person who cares the most in this conversation or in this friend group uh, or whatever uh, about um, some uh, some group of disadvantaged people, say. Um, but, you know, when you put it this way, this sounds ugly. And if, I mean, Brandon and I get blowback all the time from people who get really mad and say, how dare you say that I or anyone uh, am engaging in, in moral talk with anything other than the interests of the people who, you know, uh, who are trying to defend or, or uh, promote or, or whatever. Um, you know, how dare, how dare you say that anything other than concern for, for that is, uh, is what's motivating us. And we don't think uh, that it's only, you know, it's, we don't think that it's generally uh, just a matter of people trying to promote their own interests, right? Uh, to, to promote their status. It can be both. Uh, but it's also quite plausible that people are, are not always aware uh, when they're motivated uh, by, by status seeking. Um, so one thing, and I, th and I think both of y'all kind of touched on it is when people grandstand, and again, wittingly or unwittingly, there's that one upsmanship, like you have to have a hotter take than the next guy and then a progressively hotter take, otherwise you're not gonna get any attention or attraction. And we see the effect that that's had on political discourse, discourse around social issues, whether it's racism, feminism, abortion, the election, whatever. Um, how do you, as let's, let's start with the, the mindset of just a consumer, right? Like I'm an average dude, I take out my phone, I'm scrolling through Facebook or group chats or whatever, and I see all these people you know, engaging in exactly that. What's your advice for navigating that? Like, even if I care about some of these social, let's say, causes, everything I read just as the days go, go on get more and more polarized. 
That's a good question. One thing to do is to get off Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that... Uh, that, that you know, we give that advice all you know often, and and it's not very satisfying. We recognize it's not very satisfying advice. Uh, so here are a couple things that we suggest in the book. In in and and I think these are generally good things to keep in mind in navigating social media or you know the larger political climate. So one thing to do is. Um, to be careful about how we contribute ourselves. So one question we can always ask ourselves when we're about to type into Twitter or Facebook or whatever, uh, am I doing this to look good or am I doing this to do good? Like, is, th is this thing that I'm about to say, like, can I tell myself a story about how this is actually going to help someone? Like, is this going to provide, you know, evidence for something I believe in? Is this going to actually help someone actually stand up for what's right? Or, or am I doing this to look good? And, and would I be disappointed if I didn't get, you know, five retweets or a hundred likes or whatever? Am I going to be disappointed if this doesn't go viral? If you're going to be disappointed, that suggests, uh, at least in our view, um, the wrong kind of priority in engaging in public discourse. The, you know, we think that the good kinds of priorities don't have to do with status seeking and making ourselves look good and promoting our brand on Twitter or Facebook. These are really important issues and they call for more than the promotion of our own reputation. So one thing that we recommend in the book is to, uh, is to sort of look inward, right? So, you know, a lot of people read the book or come across the work and they want to know like, all right, show me who the grandstander is. Give me the test for who's grandstanding. And it's a perfectly understandable question that people have and we totally get it. And in the book, we do go through some some ways that grandstanding tends to to rear its head in discourse but we think that you know this sort of response that people want to know all right let me let me at the grandstander let me go get him is the wrong kind of is the wrong kind of response what, what we recommend is really turning our moral gaze um away from others and onto ourselves and asking ourselves um, you know what can i do to make this discourse healthier and less toxic so that's that's one thing another thing very briefly is just to um, you know, when you come across stuff on Twitter or uh, Facebook or social media generally um, that looks self-serving, where it looks like someone is offering a hot take or offering an extreme hyperbolic response, if it looks like something that might be attention-seeking, just ignore it. Just ignore it. I mean, one thing that grandstanders want is your attention. That's what they thrive on. That's what they that, that you know keeps them going. Do you, do you consider people... You know, there's always people who are, it's not, you know, we used to say like playing devil's advocate, but I think now the more sophisticated version of that is people who want to offer like a nuanced contrarian take to the discussion, whether they kind of believe it or not. Is that the same or is that a little bit of a different? Yeah, I don't think it's the flavor? same. I, I, I think there is, is value and virtue in people um, offering in good faith reasons and evidences maybe for things they don't believe um, in an effort to, um, you know, figure out what, what the truth is. I think those are perfectly valuable things. And I, you know, and one thing, you know, I think you're sort of hinting at here is that it's very difficult to tell when someone's grandstanding. Yeah. It's very difficult to tell. And the reason is because grandstanding has two parts. There's the thing that you say, and there's the reason why you say it, your motivation. And that is hidden from us that we don't get to see. I don't get to poke, you know, peer into your head, Omar, and know why the things you say um, 
on on Twitter. And so um, it's it can be very difficult, but that's just part of life. I mean, it's very difficult to know when someone's lying. It's very difficult to know when someone's bragging or um, engaging in demagoguery or, you know, this, this thing called humble bragging where yeah. people, you know, people say things like, oh, I can't, you know, my my boss gives me all the all the most important assignments. I just can't believe it, you know. Um, so that those sorts of things are all things that involve a kind of motivation that's sort of hidden from us. And it's very difficult to tell. And that's why we caution, you know, go, not, not going around accusing people of grandstanding. Um, but also, you know, if you, if you see someone that is, that, you know, that you think is grandstanding, you know, maybe you just ignore it. Um, and the hope is that we can sort of change the norms of public discourse so that this sort of self-centered, self-aggrandizing moral discourse becomes a little embarrassing. So there's another part of the discourse that happens in that, and you see a lot where people are, let's say they are well-intentioned, that they're trying to engage and learn about a topic, but because all the information has become so polarized, they don't, like, there's no guidance on how to navigate it. And I'll, I'll give an example to highlight what I mean. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about, let's say, why did people vote a certain way, right? And, and I'll try to keep this unbiased, but you have one side saying, well, everyone that voted a certain way is racist. And the other side is saying, well, everyone who voted this way is trying to destroy the country or whatever, right? And so their entire camps of people get painted with the most extreme views of the other. So me coming in saying like, okay, let me try to understand, is everyone that says this or believes this actually racist? And it's it's hard to navigate those waters because every issue gets turned into the most extreme version of it. Yeah, that, I mean, what you're pointing out, I think, is a huge problem. We talk about it uh, a good bit in the book uh, about, um, so I mean, there, there are a couple of, of parts here. Uh, one is that when a discourse is, is rich in grandstanding, uh, there's status to be gained by talking about how much you hate the other side. Yeah. Uh, and when people do that, often, you know, what they do is they give characterizations of uh, characterizations of, of the other side that are ridiculous, that are caricatures, basically. Uh, they will see, say, you know, that uh, all Republicans are, are, are just rich white men uh, or, you know, everyone, everyone in the Democratic Party, like half of them are gay uh, um, and there's social science that, that we cite in, in the book showing this, that if you ask people, you know, what, what percentage of, of people who vote for this party have this or that trait, um, they're off by factors of like 10 and 20. Right? So it's really harmful, in other words, that uh, our discourse is, is overrun with um, people who are so eager to paint the other side uh, in the most extreme terms possible. Uh, because it gives everyone else a distorted view uh, of what's really going on, uh, of what people are really like uh, who support one or another party or candidate. Um, so it's just as you say, the, in the information uh, becomes kind of politicized or, or, or polarized, I think you said, uh, or, or moralized uh, in a really misleading way. Uh, another thing, the other part uh, of this that happens is people get sick of it. Uh, people don't want to engage in these kinds of discussions. They're not helpful. They're over the top. Uh, they're very heated. There's no progress made. Uh, and so what happens is that the people who don't find it 
very uh, either you know emotionally fulfilling uh, or who aren't getting status or who aren't very interested in getting getting status from engaging in, in these kinds of discussions, they check out. So, uh, so, you know, we have a dis uh, discussion in the book called moderates check out uh, yeah. because this is what happens. Uh, people who are kind of in the middle, who have nuanced views, uh, who are kind of tired of, of uh, saying, well, you know, I think abortion is a really complicated issue. And, you know, I'm not sure what to think about this one wrinkle of it. And, or, you know, it seems like the reasons are, are kind of intention here. Uh, and then they get, they get dogpiled. Um, so for someone like that, What's the point in engaging in, in a moral discussion with people who are just going to rush to villainize you um, to show that, you know, you're supposedly not morally pure. Um, so these people check out. Um, so it's, it's awful for them, of course, uh, to, to go through that, but it also deprives the rest of us of reasonable people uh, giving reasons and, and arguments that we're otherwise quite, plaus quite plausibly not going to think of uh, that we then won't discuss uh, and then people will will further polarize. Um, I mean, even more uh, because they're only hearing uh, the most extreme views, and they think, well, it's it's. I guess it's either this group of crazy people or or this other group of crazy people, and I'm closer to you know this group of crazy people, so I, I guess I'm with them. Uh, so you know, this is another reason to, to think that we need uh, to get people to, to calm down about grandstanding. How do you re-engage those moderate voices? Like I feel when I think of people that have those moderate voices and takes, instead of talking about politics, they're just kind of, they, like you said, they check out and they're like, I'm going to dedicate all of my intellectual energy to fantasy football. Like, you know, instead of, you know, something like that, but how do you re-engage and get those voices back? Because they, you know, they often do have a more informed or more nuanced or, you know, just a more healthier view on a lot of subjects. That's a really hard question. I, I think that one thing that happens uh, is people who are interested in, in morality and politics uh, will find another forum. Uh, so they'll find a, a private, you know, more contained community of, of, of people who uh, maybe are more reasonable, who actually like following arguments where they lead. Um, this used to be called a philosophy department, uh, but it's now it's a WhatsApp really group, not working out so much for us anymore. <laughs> um, but, but then, you know, this is, this is not a great solution because then maybe those people can have worthwhile discussions, but then the rest of the world doesn't hear about them. Or maybe we, we hope that it trickles out somehow. Um, but, you know, other than that, I mean, you're getting into things that are, are like, um, you know, tinkering with the algorithm on social media, uh, which they're not going to do, right? Because so there's yeah. the study showing if you want to go viral on social media, uh, a great way to do so is to uh, invoke various moral emotional terms, hatred, um, you know, unjust, um, you know, eviscerated, um, you know, Ben Shapiro eviscerates this person, yeah. John Stewart, um, the entrails are everywhere, right? Um, so people know that, that this is a good way, you know, to, you know, catastrophize, to make things, you know, really blown up and fiery. This is a good way to, to go viral. Uh, and of course, social media firms are, are well aware of this. They could tinker with their algorithms uh, so that, you know, that sort of stuff is, is demoted and maybe more reasonable uh, talk is, is promoted. Um, I think they probably have every reason not to do that uh, economically. Yeah. Uh, but if they, you know, they want to get civic virtue all of a sudden, um, I, I think that would be a great thing.
That was one thing that y'all mentioned in the book was one arena where it's a little bit different. And that was, I think, politics as a morality pageant where people are almost expecting or wanting grandstanding in a sense, because it's signaling to them sort of like what side someone is on. Um, what have you seen like, now I know that's obviously always been there, but how is it different now with all the social media as compared to maybe even just a few years ago? One of the things we know is what people say when they're asked, why do you vote the way you vote? And one of the things that's really important to voters is to share the values, to share the moral convictions of politicians that represent them. They want to know this politician cares about them. They want to know this politician roughly cares about the things that they care about. <clears throat> this gives an incentive to politics. Now, in the abstract, that's, you know, that's perfectly fine. You might think it's perfectly fine for voters to want politicians to share their values and, and agree with them about these sort of foundational moral issues. Here's the problem. The problem is this gives, uh, as you know, this, this gives an incentive to politicians to put their values on display. And, uh, and so we know that there's really simple ways for politicians to put their values on display. They can use a hashtag, they can use a slogan, they can get on Twitter and put something in their bio. And what this does is that this easily encapsulates this really simple value that they know voters want. So, you know, for the left, it might be something having to do with Black Lives Matter. Um, so you can imagine a voter on the left thinking, I want a politician to care deeply about this issue. And so what does a politician do? Well, they put on their bio, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Or on the right, it could be about, you know, you know, enforcing the border or whatever. And so, you know, a politician puts some slogan in their, in their bio. Oh, I got, so, I got weekly mailers, like physical flyers, at least two or three a week for the past month. Uh, all of them were, which candidate was anti-abortion or pro-abortion? Like, yeah, that was, that was literally yeah. like, they knew that signaling that one issue would sway the vote. Right. Yeah. So politicians collect these sort of like moral trinkets. Right. And they and they put them in their in their bios. Now, again, you might think, OK, so what's the problem? Right. What's the problem with showing that you care or showing that you're that you have these values? Well, here's a problem. Um, a lot of the times the policies that politicians endorse to express their values. Are not workable they don't actually accomplish the values they purport to defend. And here's just one example, and it has to do with the rent control that you mentioned earlier. So a politician might say, look, I really care about the poor. I really care about um, affordable housing. And so I unveil this policy that vividly and clearly shows that I care about the poor. I'm going to make it illegal for landlords to charge X amount of dollars for apartments in San Francisco. That shows vividly that I care. However, you know, if you if you ask, you know, economists about rent control to a person, they will tell you the rent control laws reduce the quality and quantity of housing. So here's the problem. We have politicians endorsing policies for their expressive value in order to get elected, in order to, you know, raise money, in order to, um, you know, get on cable news at night. Uh, th those are the things they really want. They endorse policies to do those things. And yet, were those policies to actually be implemented, 
they would undermine the values they purport to care about. And this happens on the right and the left. And so there's this problem in democratic societies where voters care deeply about having their politicians express their values. Politicians have a strong incentive to put these values on display with these policies. But the problem is a lot of times these policies that express values don't actually do what they're supposed to do. And, and voters often don't know that. I mean, if you, if you ask a lot of voters, do, you know, can you explain the economics of rent control? They're going to say, uh, what? <laughs> no, I can't. But I know that this guy has a really vivid proposal to solve this problem. And so I'm going to vote for him. And it, and it almost seems like the, the grandstanding effect makes it impossible to have the policy discussion. Because you, have, right. to, you have to pick a side. Like You either have to be for the poor or you're automatically against the poor. And so having the policy discussion almost will never happen. Yeah, it's almost like um, morality trumps everything else. So, so if I say this policy is the most moral or this policy is the most um, uh, you know, just policy, and someone asks, well, yeah, but is, you know, what are the economics of this policy? Like, what, if, like, what would happen if we actually implemented that? Would it backfire? It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I care about what's the, you know, which policy is moral. Why are you bringing economics into this? Why are you bringing practical questions? We're trying to promote justice here. I don't have time for your facts and figures. There are a lot of people, if you spend much time on Twitter, who talk that way, who yeah. don't care about you know, as you know, <laughs> we don't care about the details because those details get in the way of the kind of moral advertisement for these policies th that they really care about. I know we're kind of running on time here. I had kind of maybe a final question if you both could sure. uh, add your thoughts, which was, you know, the more you doom scroll through social media, right? You're checking Facebook, Twitter, all these things, and you keep seeing it get progressively worse. And I feel especially with like the election, it's like, we've seen magnitudes of worse like day by day, you know, more than in the yeah. past couple of months. It's almost like every day it's a new catastrophe or crisis. Um, what, you know, what's the way to instill some sense of optimism or like things that I can do to either de-incentivize this behavior or like save my own sanity or, you know, just some way of saying like there is a way out there is a way for this to get better and the, the algorithms aren't going to just keep adjusting and incentivizing this behavior more and more and more yeah here's here's one one thing that i like to say um so think of like early dinner parties right people are first you know uh in in like in civil society uh eating um uh, you know, with, with the upper crust, um, you know, more people are, are uh, doing fine dining, things like this. If you went to, to dinner parties like this or, or to uh, restaurants where, where people are, are, you know, first being brought into the practice, you probably would have seen some wild stuff, right? Uh, people, uh, you know, taking bones of meat off of the serving dish and gnawing it and just throwing it back, you know, blowing their nose in the tablecloth and, uh, and then, you know, if you read uh, early etiquette guides uh, about dining uh, from, from the Middle Ages, you'll see that the advice is, is actually about just this sort of thing. Uh, people had to be told not to do this stuff. Uh, so stuff that, that you and I, if we were ever told explicitly not, not to blow our nose in the tablecloth, would have learned as, as very young children, um, you know, people had to learn. And it probably took a while for, for people to, to figure this out and have the norm catch on. Uh, 
So one thing that you might think, uh, sounding a, a note of optimism, is that we're just very early in in uh, having the whole world interconnected uh, in, in the way that we are. And we just need a while to have good norms develop. Uh, so eventually it will be seen as like really embarrassing, uh, as you know, Brandon said earlier, uh, for people to go on social media and grandstand, just as it'd be really embarrassing to see someone at a nice restaurant blowing their nose in the tablecloth. Um, so, you know, give it some time. Um, it's, it's the sort of thing where, where it's hard to see what you can do day to day to make this happen. But uh, human beings are pretty smart uh, on, on the whole, and we've solved bigger problems than this in the past. Uh, so I think there, there's reason to be hopeful. So, yeah, one thing to add is, um, you know, I, I don't know how old you are, Omar, but I, I remember, so I got Facebook in like 2005 or so, 2006. I'm, I'm old enough to have signed up for Facebook when you had to have a college email address. Okay, good. Me too. <laughs> All right. Me too. We yeah. may, may be about the same age then. All right. So I, I don't know about you. I don't know what circles you ran in 15 years ago, but I don't remember, you know, when I was on Facebook, 2005, six, you know, I don't remember anyone talking about politics. It was like super boring stuff. Like I'm going to a party tonight or I made beans and rice or I'm watching uh, oceans 12 or something. It's just, and it was, it was like, it was like people had to figure out that things like Facebook could be used in the way that we now use them, basically to talk about yeah. politics and gain status. That took a while. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it was a new technology. And sometimes you know, it takes humans a while to figure out how to use a technology for a new purpose. I mean, it took us 50 years to figure out how to put wheels on suitcases. <laughs> I mean, so, so it, it took us a while to figure out how to use this technology to grandstand. I mean, grandstanding has always been around, but it, it I, I think it took us a while to catch up to use Facebook and Twitter for these purposes. The flip side of that is, is basically what Justin points out is that it, it takes a while to figure out the new norms and to coalesce on a new set of rules for social media. Now, you know, the optimistic take is that we, we will develop norms. And, um, and so social media could be cleaned up a little bit, whether that's uh, likely or not, I don't know. Here are two other things that we often talk about um, reasons to be optimistic. You know, one of them is um, to build alternate institutions. And I, and I think this is really important for people um, to get off, to spend less time on Facebook and Twitter and social media and build alternate institutions where the incentives to grandstand are, are, um, are lesser. So, you know, maybe you get together and you, and you do a reading group, right? Maybe you have an online um, so on Facebook, I'm a part of various sort of like subgroups where the norms are much different than, than the Wild West norms on like Twitter and Facebook, because we've, it's a small group of people and we enforce the norms. And if someone's not going to behave, you kick them out. Right. And so I think building alternative institutions where people even online can get together and have these discussions, even, you know, having strong disagreement, but enforce certain kinds of norms where these, these kinds of important conversations can, ha um, we can, can happen. I think that's one reason for optimism. Another one, and this is a more extreme one, is, um, is uh, you know, I think we would probably all do better off by um, decreasing the amount of our lives that are overtaken by politics. 
Um, and I think a lot of us spend, you know, I think myself included, I think Justin would say too. I mean, there's too much of our lives are taken over by thinking about stressing about worrying about reading about tweeting about politics. And, you know, my view is as, as important politics is, and I think it is important politics makes us dumb and mean. And, um, I think there are many better ways to spend our lives doing good for others, even than investing in politics. I mean, teaching your kids how to ride a bike, learning how to play the piano, you know, visiting an, a local nursing home or, you know, whatever there are, whatever those things are, those things are going to have much better returns in terms of helping others, making a difference in the world than um, spending six hours a day on Twitter, reading about, you know, reading about the election. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost ridiculous to think like, oh yeah, I'm actually making a difference by reading all this stuff on Twitter. You know, it's like, that's not going to make you a better person. It's not going to make you a better citizen. And so I do think carving out larger areas of our lives that are insulated from politics, it's better for our mental health. And it also, you know, encourages civic friendship where we can be friends with people. Um, even if I disagree with someone strongly about politics, because politics has not allowed to enter into this relationship. Like this is a no politics zone. And I think that, that vision of civic friendship is, um, uh, is really, um, something to aspire to. And I think, you know, a grounds for optimism. Awesome. I think that's a good note to, to close on. Um, where can our listeners uh, find you guys or follow you? I mean, we just talked about getting off social media, but do you have <laughs> social media that, they, that you'd want them to follow on or uh, anything like that? And I know the, the book is obviously available at Amazon and I'm assuming other booksellers, but any, any other places that you'd want to let them know to follow you guys or to stay in touch? Yeah, we're both on Twitter at, at Brandon Warmke and at Justin Tosi. Uh, you know, we wrote this book and then now we have to behave on social media. So it's, uh, we're, I, I think we're both very boring follows on Twitter, but you're, but you're more than welcome to. Um, and uh, yeah, and thank you. Yeah, the book's on Amazon. It, there's also, uh, it's on Kindle. There's an Audible version too. Um, so lots of ways to, um, lots of ways to find it. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Thanks so much, Omar. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Google Play or whatever podcast player you use. And please rate and review the podcast. As always, if you share it with a friend that's much appreciated, you can check the show notes for all the details and links. See you in the next episode.